We're uh, transitioning a, a bit in the book of 1 Thessalonians to the second half. I divide the book up into two halves. The first half is about the past story of the Thessalonian church. God had done some amazing things in this church. Paul tells us in chapter 1 that it was evident that God had called them to salvation. Their testimony was so powerful that it was trumpeting out all throughout Macedonia and Achaia, all the provinces around them. Not only had he converted them in the past, uh, their faithfulness was, was proven by it holding firm in the face of much affliction. This affliction came from wicked men and women in the city of Thessalonica who were punishing them. But then Paul is able to successfully show us it not only came from wicked men and women, it came from Satan himself. Satan desired to get to the Thessalonian believers to, uh, to hinder them in their walk with God. And so he prevented Paul from going there. At the end of chapter 2, you can read about that. And, and then in chapter 3, Paul says, I, I'm concerned that maybe the tempter has tempted you. And all of our work in Thessalonica would have been in vain. And so that leads Paul to pray a prayer for them, to thank God for what he's done in the past. But then chapter 4, the Thessalonian story that Paul's concerned with now moves to the future. Okay, so the, the book is divided into two sections, in my opinion, the past, the future. As you come to the future of the Thessalonian story, Paul's got many exhortations he wants to give them. Many imperatives in the second half, chapters 4 and 5. You'll see a lot of imperatives. I think these imperatives, in my opinion, can be summarized in about six different ways that we'll look at in the course of the next several sermons. These six characteristics of Christian behavior that Paul expects or longs for them shows them and us that God's plan for believers is more significant than conversion and initial faithfulness. But he wants us to grow more and more. And so as we go through these six significant characteristics of Christian behavior in the next several sermons, I think it will be true that for many or most of us, there will need to be growth in these six areas. The areas are personal holiness, brotherly love, Christian hope in the return of Christ, diligence, harmony in the body, and finally, enablement of the Spirit of God. And so over the course of the next several weeks, we'll look at these in more detail because these themes will reveal to us what behavior worthy of God looks like. What behavior worthy of God looks like. This reminds me of Growing up in my home, uh, my father gave me several, I'll call them rules. I don't think he ever used the word. And I have to be careful, he's here today. Uh, so I'm treading lightly here. But several ways or characteristics that would be behavior worthy of being a Belford man. What it looked like to be a Belford man. I think his personal prerogative, he was an only child, so he, his goal was to make a man out of me. And so he would appeal to various ways that I should act. I called them rules. I understood them to be non-negotiable rules. Things like, I've got four of them. One, never let them see you in pain. That was one of his rules. Never let them see you in pain. 
Unfortunately, I didn't really know who he was referring to when he said them. Okay, um, now it became obvious later that them referred to anyone who could possibly gain some sort of advantage by seeing you in pain. It's anyone. Never let them see you in pain. That's rule number one. Number two, if you get hurt, always get up. Always get up. This was non-negotiable. Even if you were bruised uh, or perhaps small broken bone or something, always get up. That's a Belford rule. Number three, Number three, Belford men are not allowed to wear chapstick. Okay. If anyone ever offers it to you, you should kindly refuse. Doesn't matter if you're chafed, chapped, dry, or bleeding, you should never use it. Okay, number four, you should always refuse lotion of any variety. It's a sign of weakness if you ever use lotions, especially if they make you smell like a girl. So, these were rules of what behavior worthy of being a Belford man represented. So we come to 1 Thessalonians, Paul lays out behavior worthy of God. This is what it looks like. His marks are also non-negotiable, and they are only possible through the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, the one we've been talking about all day today. Today we'll look at the first one. The first characteristic of behavior worthy of God is personal holiness. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Let me read them for us. You follow along in your Bible. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things." as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So behavior worthy of God requires personal holiness. I think Paul establishes this in two ways. First, he gives a general exhortation, then a specific one. The general one is in verses 1 and 2, and I think we could go quickly through that there, where he basically says, you must obey the previous instructions that I gave to you about how to please God. He uh, establishes this really in two complementary ways in these two verses. He first appeals to the Thessalonians to walk in obedience to the commands that Paul had given them. The text says he asked them to do this and then urges them to obey the commands that he's already given. Then Paul requires them to obey previous commands about pleasing God. He tells us he, he told them about how to walk and to please God, which I think just informs us a little bit more about what sort of uh, admonitions he had given them when he planted the church with them, about how you could go about pleasing God. 
explains in verse 2 that he had given them many instructions. And that word instructions is a, a very pointed word. It speaks of uh, normally instructions that a military leader would give or a philosopher or some deity would give. These are strong admonitions or requirements. And so Paul starts out in a very general way, and he says, follow the instructions I've already given to you. But then in verse 3, he gets more specific. Okay, you got to follow everything I gave you, but let me talk to you a little bit more about what it looks like to please God. And his specific expression, I think he'll answer two questions in verses 3 through 8. Okay, two questions. First question he answers is, what does pleasing God look like? What does pleasing God involve? And he gives a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is in verse 3. You want the, the simple answer, for this is the will of God. Two words. Your sanctification. What is God's will? What will please him? Your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is a word that could be translated holy or to be holy. In other words, God's will is for your holiness. He wants you to be holy. That's the simple answer. As a matter of fact, that answer is a theme all throughout this passage. I've arranged all of verses 3 through 8 around that theme of holiness because if you look in your Bible at verse 3, as I just read, for this is the will of God, your, you could translate it, holiness. Then you look in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. Look at verse 7 in your text. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. There it is again. And then look at verse 8 in adjective form. All the others are nouns in adjective form. Notice how he describes the gift that's given to us at the end of verse 8. Who gives us the, and it's kind of an odd way for him to write in the original, the spirit of holiness. I think he's describing the Holy Spirit of God. But he's just reminding us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. So this is a section about holiness. So Paul's short answer to what will please God? How can I live in a way that God would be honored and glorified? And the answer is holiness. Be holy. The long answer then comes right after verse 3. Actually, in the end of verse 3. And so what Paul does is he shows us the type of holiness that he's concerned about with the Thessalonian church. And you can see this very clearly in your English Bible. If you mark in your Bible, uh, you might consider marking at these. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and mark the next word, that. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Look at verse 4. That. That's the second way he describes holiness. So you've got the word that in verse 3, that you have seen from sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his body in honor and holiness and honor. And then look at verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brothers. So what Paul is doing is he's showing us, he's describing kind of in an appositional way what holiness he's concerned about. He says, let me talk to you about it in three ways, the sort of holiness I want you to, to evidence. 
And so I want to look at these a little closer, this longer description of what God expects. First, being holy requires refraining from immoral behavior. You say, where do you see that in your Bible? Look at the end of verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you is that you would be holy. That is, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Now, to be clear here, um, holiness involves much more than morality, um, a, than a call to sexual immorality or morality, but it includes no less than that. In other words, being holy is more than being moral, but you can't be holy without being moral. Okay? So as you go through this text, Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the word porneia, and it's a broad word that could refer, refer to any sort of sexual sin, whether it speaks of sins of the mind and our imaginations, sins, other sins like adultery or sexual immorality, all kinds of different things. And the world in which Paul was writing, this was a significant problem for, that, for them. Pornea was a significant problem as it was often defended in their culture, Greco-Roman cities, as a necessity uh, of nature, like something like eating and drinking. As a matter of fact, a Roman who owned a female slave could use his human property to satisfy his own desires in their culture. Many cities like Thessalonica immorality and prostitution were officially sanctioned as religious events or expressions of worship. This is a culture in which they lived. And so some of the believers that Paul wrote to in Thessalonica were saved out of this sort of lifestyle. I think certain believers would find what Paul has to say in this passage, refrain from all forms of sexual immorality as being quite difficult to practice, being strict. One commentator said it this way. He said the moral teaching of Paul would be a hard sell to some in Thessalonica and one round of teaching on the subject would not be enough for some of the members of this church. And so Paul's concern, in my opinion, that some of them would revert back to pagan practices, back to the immorality that used to describe them before they came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if their culture is polluted, was polluted by this sort of pressure, this sort of sin all around them. Our culture is as well. I mean, for instance, the numbers of people accessing internet pornography in our country alone is damning. It's damning. These numbers have gotten no better with the invention of mobile devices that allow you in the privacy of yourself I, I just read a statistic that now well over half of access to internet pornography in our culture is coming through cell phones. Through cell phones. Men and women, God's will is for us to avoid every form of immorality, including impure thoughts. Remember what Christ said. Christ said that even looking on a woman in a wrong way is a form of adultery. 
We must refrain from sexual immorality. That's the first way he describes your holiness. But then he goes further in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, second, being holy requires controlling our impure sexual impulses. Look at verse 4. He says that each one of you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. I won't say much about that last phrase. I don't think he's just bashing on the Gentile nations. I think he's describing a certain type of Gentile person who doesn't know God, and this is how they act. Certain type of unbeliever. Again here, Paul appeals to the sexual arena as God's will for believers. Paul says that we are to gain mastery over. Another way you could translate this is to possess our vessels in holiness and in honor. I think the idea is that we are to develop complete mastery over our own immoral impulses. The text says we are to know how to do this, or it could be translated that we are to learn how to do this. And did you notice that he says, each one of you, comprehensive, each one of you must know how to do this, gain mastery over yourselves. I think these words, learning how or knowing how, indicate that this is some, you know, it's not a quick and simple one-time decision that we make, but involves habitual decisions and patterns and choices for followers of Jesus. One thing I'll point out in the text here is that the, uh, the ESV has translated a word that could be translated vessel as the, with the word body. Okay, they've made a little bit of a choice here because uh, in some of your Bibles, you'll have that each one should learn how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And that's probably a better way to translate this. The, the question would be, what does Paul mean when he says vessel? Okay, and, and really there are two main choices. It may mean that Paul is talking about a man uh, with his wife controlling his wife, calling her a vessel. Okay, you say, well, that sounds really far-fetched. Actually, in some text, women are referred to as vessels. Actually, so are men. Uh, like First Peter 3, she's the weaker vessel. You remember that text? And so some people make the case, and that was, a, that was a way a lot of people took this passage for a long time, that it's talking about a man and the way he treats or controls his wife. Uh, I think there are problems with that. Uh, it's not the way I would take it. I do think it's a man's body. And I think this is true of men and women. So the ESV translators, I think, take this white. The, right, the, the believer is to learn to control his or her own body from performing illicit acts. So, Paul says, be holy. What does be holy mean? Be holy by abstaining from immorality. Be, be holy by controlling impure impulses. And then third, in the beginning of verse 6, he gives us that third that statement that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Third, being holy requires not defrauding your brother or sister in Christ. Verse 6, Paul says here, do not go beyond and defraud. I think the words go beyond mean do not wrong or go beyond what is proper. Don't go too far, you could translate it. And the word defraud means to cheat others or take advantage of them. 
And so Paul says in this text, we are not to go beyond and to cheat our brothers. You notice that in the text? It struck me, I just thought, you know, this is a great passage, I want to understand what this means, and I'm reading through this, I come to the word brother. And it struck me as being odd. I wondered, why did God not say, or Paul not say, don't go beyond and defraud any person, anyone, or someone, or something like that. He says, brother. Okay, so we got to deal with that a little bit. What does Paul mean when he says, you are not to go too far, you're not to go beyond and, and cheat your brother. Okay, and I, uh, I, instead of seeing this as some sort of double standard, like, okay, i got to treat my brothers in one way, but every other person, that's fine. I think what might be happening here is that some believer at Thessalonica may have been immoral with another believer's spouse. You can imagine, a small gathering of believers in homes in Thessalonica, it would be possible for some relationships to develop that we're, we're beyond the limit outside of the bounds, so that the marriage rights of a brother or a sister were being violated. That's what I think is going on in this passage. Don't go beyond. Do not defraud your brother. I think perhaps speaking in reference to the spouse of that brother. And so let me make a few applications for us as, as a church, and I would encourage you to pay close attention. These are great things for us to hear, great things for us to consider, and great ways for us to pray for ourselves and for other brothers and sisters in this church. Number one, if you feel yourself being drawn to a person within this assembly who is the spouse of another believer, you need to end the relationship or add restraints and accountability in your interaction with that person. I encourage you, talk to the pastors. We would love to help you. We would come alongside of you. If you feel yourself drawn to the spouse of someone in this assembly in an illicit way, you need to stop. And you need to seek help. God's given us the Holy Spirit. This text says, do not go beyond. Defraud your brother. Second application. We must avoid any actions intended to seduce or allure the husband or wife of someone within our community. Things like flattery, touch, flirtation. We must avoid actions intended to seduce or lure the spouse of another here. While we must always avoid unrighteous acts of seduction, it is especially damning if a man or a woman tries to allure the husband or wife of another believer. We cannot defraud them. This is acting in a sinful way. It's not appropriate, and it is not worthy of God. And this is true, of course, not only of married men and women, but if you feel yourself drawn to anyone else in an illicit way, a way not approved in Scripture, then you must run away and seek help from God and others. I think sometimes these things start out quite innocently for us, trying to help another person. But then our hearts are pulled in. Our, imagines take, our imaginations take over. We must not defraud our brothers or sisters or any other person for that matter. 
And the final point of application, I say this is a, another powerful reason to avoid shows and online sites that contain illicit scenes. I've been shocked by what some believers, some shows that believers make excuses for. To be clear, from my perspective as a pastor and studying scripture and thinking through that scenario, these scenes objectify, exploit, and abuse real human beings. Instead of seducing us, they should sicken us, men and women, as followers of Christ. This involves not an industry, but individuals made in God's image. Don't defraud them. Don't defraud them. We must learn to control our impure impulses and not defraud our brothers and sisters or other human beings. As we go through this, I think it'd be very easy for you to sit back and think about like other people who need this sermon. I, mean, I really wish you would. And I'd encourage you, think of yourself. Think of yourself and pray God for goodness and strength. And so in this first passage, this is what behavior pleasing to God looks like. Personal holiness. Okay. Then, and just quickly, what I think he does in the rest of the text is he answers one, one other question. And that is, why is pleasing God important? Man, Pastor Brent, you, man, you just went through, that's uh, some hard stuff, this text. Why should I do that? Well, Paul answers that for us. He gives us three reasons why, and we'll just go quickly. Three powerful reasons to avoid immorality. Number one, because of the Lord's future judgment. Look at verse six, the middle. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly, we solemnly warned you about this. The first motive for us to refrain from immorality, to learn to control our sexual desires and not harm others through our misconduct is literally stated, an avenger is the Lord. Paul could have appealed to all kinds of different consequences for the Thessalonians about why they shouldn't be immoral with people around them. Physical con consequences, things like AIDS or diseases or illegitimate pregnancies or emotional consequences, things like guilt and fear and shame and conviction or social rejection. But he is most concerned in this text with the eschatological reason. Jesus will avenge this sort of offender. And I think it might be someone who's ripping off a brother or sister in a spouse sort of relationship. Jesus is the ultimate avenger in that sort of situation. Sometimes I think the English words vengeance and avenge carry with it the idea of vindictiveness or seeking revenge, but that's not true of the Greek word that's here. The Greek word behind avenger means it's Jesus' nature to bring about justice in these matters. Jesus will take care of this sort of person. If a married believer is wronged, Jesus will take care of it. He's an avenger. He will bring justice. I liked how one person described this, one commentator he said, in a world where evildoers all too often unjustly oppress others 
seemingly without penalty, it is comforting to hear about a future day when an avenger will come and will take what is wrong and make it right. That's Jesus. He's the ultimate avenger who will make these things right in the future. So don't be immoral because Jesus will be the judge. Second reason, because of God's former call, verse 7. It says, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. So we should avoid immorality because of God's former call in our lives. And we won't take a lot of time to establish this. But in verse 7, what we learn about holiness is it's more than a call to a future attitude. What Paul does is he traces it back into our path, our past. And he reminds them that, you know, when you were called to Jesus Christ as Savior, you were called to holiness. You were actually called in holiness, which makes me think that what Paul's describing is the holiness of Jesus that is transferred to us. I love 1 Corinthians 1.30. You could read it sometime. Write down that reference sometimes. Uh, that says that uh, for in Christ, or it says, for Christ has been made to us. And Paul goes through a list of four things, redemption, wisdom, righteousness, and holiness. I think what Paul's describing in this passage is the fact that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus' holiness was given to you. It was a gift, just like righteousness, so that we stand in his holiness, his moral perfection. And so well, what's Paul doing in verse 7? What's he reminding them? Here's another reason you should avoid immorality. When God called you, he made you holy in Jesus Christ. He called you, that was, he did not call you in an impurity. He called you in a holiness. I think he's talking about Christ's holiness there. And then the third and final reason why we must avoid immorality is because of the Spirit's present nature. Verse 8. Finally, we should strive for holiness because to disregard these commands is not to disregard Paul, it's to disregard God himself. When we choose immorality, moral practices, we reject God. When you choose to reject the instructions I give you this day about holiness, you are actually rejecting God. And you are rejecting the same God, I love how this text ends, the same God who gave you a gift. And this is so fitting on our Pentecost Sunday when we're thinking of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gave us a gift. It's the God who gave us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. And so what I think he's saying here is uh, we must be holy because of the Spirit's indwelling nature for us as followers of Christ. It's interesting to me that as we've gone through this text and talked about behavior that's worthy of God, that Paul calls the entire Godhead into this discussion. Did you pick that up? I think the Lord in 1 Thessalonians is Jesus most often. He talks about God calling us, and then he talks about God giving us the Holy Spirit. He calls the entire Godhead. And not only that, Paul looks back, or I'm sorry, backwards, he looks at our present, and he looks to the future. 
Remember how God called you in holiness. Remember, you have a spirit, a Holy Spirit indwelling you that's a gift from God. And remember, Jesus will be an avenger. He'll be an avenger. It's a very important thing for Paul. Now, as we go through this, perhaps you're burdened down with the sermon. I want to remind you how this book closes. It'll be several weeks before we get there. So I think when you would be originally reading this, read these verses, the comfort of chapter 5 would come very quickly. So I want to take you to it as well. That's how we'll end. Chapter 5, verse 23, to see the language there. Prayer wish of the Apostle Paul. He prays to God. Two things. May the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you holy completely. It's a great prayer. Paul recognized God's going to have to do this. Second prayer. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great prayer. Verse 24. Statement. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Surely do it. So men and women, this has been a hard challenge to us. It's been very serious to work through Scripture. Perhaps you are burdened down in some sort of failure. You say, man, uphill climb, right, all the time. I'll just say, God through the Holy Spirit will conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, you'll become more Christ-like. It requires your work, but he will help you. And ultimately, if you are a follower of his, one day you will stand completely released from these pressures and this sin when you stand before Jesus Christ in heaven and you enjoy him forever and ever. He will present you blameless in Jesus Christ. In the end, may that be encouragement for us. Let's pray together. Father, as we go through this text, we recognize that holiness is behavior worthy of God. We know that you've given to us the gift of holiness in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You've transferred that to us. We are holy in Him. But we all also know that we are called to holiness. And so I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ in the room here today would know that if they are a Christian, they have the Holy Spirit. And that He will carry them through. He will give them strength and help. And in the end, if they are a follower of yours, we will be presented blameless before the Lord. One day, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be sanctified completely. And might that future assurance bring us hope and comfort today. In the meanwhile, we thank you. We thank you for these three reasons that you've given to us not to be immoral. Lord, help us to recognize and know that the Lord is an avenger and that you have called us in the past and that you've given us the Spirit to help. And I pray, dear Father, for any brother or sister here today who might feel these pressures, maybe temptations, allurements to people, not their spouse. 
I pray that you would give them humility to address that in their own heart. May they not be surprised because of the deceitfulness of sin and how it can just creep in and the weakness of our own flesh. But Lord, I pray as well that you would give them wisdom and encouragement and help them pursue, pursue their spouse, their own spouse. Lord, I pray that if there is some here today who feel strong temptations toward any other person that would be beyond the scope of what the Scriptures call us to do, I pray that they would as well admit that to you, repent of that. I pray that you give them grace and strength, give them through the Holy Spirit, victory. And I pray, Lord, that you would do these things for the glory of your own name. We thank you for this call. Lord, help us this week to walk in a way that is worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.